Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Open to Genesis chapter 3 and hear the word of the Lord. I will be reading verses 1 down to verse 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable, desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. May Lord bless his word. Now we looked at the first half of this passage the last time I preached, and we saw the way that Satan played out his schemes. He worked it out in such a way that he went to the woman, he deceived her, and the Bible is very clear about that. He deceived her by attacking truth. And my point to you, last time I preached, and it's the same thing that you will hear from me until, Lord willing, I die is that the issue will always deal with truth. What do you believe is true and what is, more importantly, actually true? Because that's always where the battle lies. Matt and I, John, we we just spend our whole life dealing with issues that are not true. And we have lied to ourselves and others, trying to believe something that we ought not. And we don't understand that that is at its very core satanic and demonic. Satan came with an innocent-sounding question, 
And then he quickly moved into flat out attacking the goodness of God and the will of God. And instead of her turning away in an offense and saying, this is wrong, I will not listen to this, and closing her mind to it, she continued to talk and then continued to consider and to think the words that he did until they led her astray and she ate of the tree that she was not to eat. But what was much worse is the sin of Adam, who as the head of the household, that was just one household, him and his wife, but he is also the head of all who live, all of humanity. He looked at his wife who had eaten and was not to have eaten. He was the recipient of God's direct revelation when God had commanded him not to eat of that one tree. And he looked at his wife and he made a fateful decision. It was a decision, will I go with my wife rather than stand and appeal on behalf of my wife to God, stand as the mediator, stand as the intercessor and plead for God's grace. So he didn't do that. He instead said, no, I will go with my wife. And with fullness and willfulness of mind, he ate of the tree and all of us died. In that fateful moment, everything just twisted. Everything broke. Far more than you will ever understand this side of heaven. His high-handed, willful sin of choosing his wife over his creator brought sin and death into the world. As the head of the household of humanity, his sin then becomes ours. And so the deed is done in verse 7. Sin is now corrupting every aspect of creation, every aspect of humanity. And it's here where the story continues. They're hiding. They now are all of a sudden poignantly aware of something that two seconds earlier they didn't know anything. But all of a sudden now they realize they're naked and they're shamed. Immediately, what was just simple becomes awkward and not so simple. They're feeling things that we never would have felt ourselves if Adam had not sinned. They are experiencing things for the very first time that are brand new, something that you and I, we're just so comfortable with. Because from our earliest of days, we were dead in sin. So here, as the story continues, we have the opportunity to see and to understand the story that explains the source of all that befalls us. And do not be a fool, beloved. All of it is explained right here. Now, to do this requires you and I to understand just a small part of theology. Now, if I have my way, one day you'll know all kinds of theology, and I've made it my way for the last 20 years to do that with you. But today, we're just going to look at one specific concept of theology that's important for you to know, and and we'll just deal with it as it is. There is this doctrine that is called original sin. It's very much misunderstood, like many doctrines, because we don't study doctrine and we don't learn theology, um, and as a result, we get ourselves into all kinds of problems. But probably the greatest theological mind of America 
was a man named Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards described this doctrine, the doctrine of original sin, as the doctrine of greatest importance. And I agree with him because without it, everything else won't make sense. But the better you get this one figured out, the better off you're going to be in everything else. In fact, frankly, if you can figure this out, and it can make sense, and you start to let it sink in, you will start to understand why I beat to death and why Matt beats to death certain things so much. Sometimes you may wonder, oh my gosh, here he goes again. Goodness gracious, can't we do something else? No, we can't. Because you still don't yet understand original sin. Because if you understood original sin, you wouldn't be saying, oh my gosh, there he goes again. Instead, you'd be saying, I need to hear, and I need to understand this, because my heart's broken yet again, because I am a great sinner. To fail to grasp this is to stumble over almost every other aspect of the Bible and doctrine. To minimize this doctrine of original sin makes you casual and indifferent to your sin, to your rebellion. It leads to a weak or flat-out false teaching regarding the person of God or your ability as a person or the work of salvation itself, why God saves, why Christ died, why all of this. However, when you grasp it, your eyes are open to all that is parading past your eyes every single day, every moment of every day. It makes you wise to the very core of your being, to all of the problems, and it gives you the grounding, finally, to be able to rightly speak of the solution, which is always going to be Jesus Christ only. Beloved, do not turn your minds off right here. I'm not lying to you. I am telling you the truth. If you do not understand this, it will manifest itself in how you live. You must come to grips with this. Original sin is not talking about Adam's sin, the first sin. That's not what it's actually talking about. Now, I'm going to sound like I'm going to contradict myself in a second, so hold on and, and listen carefully to the shade of difference because it's an important difference. Original sin is not talking about the first sin, meaning Adam, when he took the fruit. It's a very common error. Instead, it is called the original sin because it finds its origin in Adam's sin. That's not the same as focusing on the sin itself, but the origin, the fountainhead from which it springs is the sin of Adam. But it's also because it's found in all of us. Now listen to this. It is found in all of us from our very beginning. It is, again, and I'll say this in various ways, but it is the fountainhead of every sin you do. It is called various things, and there's all kinds of ways that we could describe this, but the way that I like to describe it, though people don't care for this phrase, is total depravity. It is the idea that all aspects of the human, meaning you, are affected by sin. 
In other words, when we talk about the idea of total depravity or original sin, we're not talking about quantity of sin. That's what a lot of people hear when they say, what do you mean we're totally depraved? Because frankly, you think you're pretty good, which tells you tells me that you still don't grasp original sin. And you've talked yourself into thinking that you're good because you've got certain amount of things that you do that by quantity, you're like, they're not that bad. I've seen a lot worse in my life. And I can tell you as a former chaplain of a super maximum security facility and as a police officer and as a father and as just a human, I have seen many, many people do many bad things over my life. So it's easy for you and I to think quantity and, and fool ourselves into thinking everything's good because we're not that bad. We're certainly not as bad as this person or that. But total depravity or original sin has got nothing to do with the quantity of your sin. Rather, it deals with the extent of your sinfulness. So if I were to take you and, and put you off to a, in one corner where you were alone, and I was to ask you to go ahead and point out that aspect of you as a human, your, your mind, your, your, your emotions, your dreams, your will, your intellect, your physical being, whatever it might be, that aspect of you, and find, point out to that one part that has not got the stain of sin, if you rightly understand this doctrine, you would say, it's all stained. It's all filthy. There's nothing good. That is original sin. It finds its origin all the way back in the beginning when our father, Adam, sinned. And the corruption of sin invaded all of us. It is this innate sinfulness of our nature that is the cause of all actual sin, your quantity. We don't sin and therefore become a sinner. Your little precious baby will sin, not because they learn sin, but because they are a sinner. That is our nature. However, again, the Bible will connect that sin or sinfulness, mankind's actual sin, an original sin back to Adam, and out of that is it, it all flows. I, I want you to go with me. Keep your finger here, but go into the New Testament. I made reference to this passage before. Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, and again, I, I commended to you my sermons on Romans 5. You can find them all on Sermon Audio. I don't know if they're on our app, but if you go to the sermonaudio.com for Missio Day Fellowship, and the link's there uh, on, in our website, you can find the Romans 5 series, and there's a lot of sermons there, and it's because it's an important doctrine. For Romans chapter 5, Paul writes these words in verses 12 through 19. Now, some of this can be, you, you can kind of get lost, so try to follow along carefully, and I'll try to read in such a way that I bring meaning into the, the text. I want you to notice right away it starts out with, therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world. Now, who is that one man, beloved? It was Adam. And death then through sin. So where did death come from? Sin. And where did sin come from? Adam. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
So what did he just connect? He said, here's one man's sin, sin enters the world, but now he has already made that transition from one man sinning to how many sinning? All. For this reason, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Don't worry about what is getting at there. Listen to my sermons. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. So now we're making a transition from the sin to something that's called the gift. And he explains, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, meaning the transgression of Adam, the many died, all of us, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Why? For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, in that passage, there's a, it's a complex passage, and that's why I preached as many sermons as I did preach in Romans 5. It's very, very dense with theology and, and ideas, so again, I don't have the time to do about 30, 20 to 30 hours of preaching on this. Just understand it's a very, very intriguing and very important chapter. But what we have here is the idea of what theologians will call a representative view. Now, what is a representative view? It just simply is this, is that there is one who represents all of us, and that man was Adam, and that whatever he did became ours as well. But there is a second one, a second man, or the Bible would call him a second Adam, who came, that if our faith rests in him, whatever he is becomes ours. Just as Adam brought you death and sin and guilt, so the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, brings life to those who believe in him. It all has to do with who ultimately you find your connection to, or another way the Bible would say it is who you are in. What I mean by that is if you're in Adam, you will die. If that is your sphere, that is your reality. But if you are in the second Adam, in Christ, you live and you find forgiveness. And so God imputes or counts this guilt of Adam in that first sin as belonging to us as well. We find our sin originating all the way back then. And as a result of this first sin of Adam, it becomes our sin, and it's the fountainhead from which all of our guilt and all of the rebellion that we do and will do and have done 
comes. Now, there's this backward look to this passage in Romans 5 because it picks up all kinds of threads that Paul has already dealt with in the previous chapters. So, by way of an example, if you were to read Romans, you would find in verses chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, so quite a bit of material, you will see Paul showing how all of humanity are sinners. He will show that whether you are in a deep, dark jungle, hidden away from anyone, never having met any other people but your own little tribe, you are as guilty before God as the most well-taught theologian who does not trust in Christ for his salvation. It does not matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, you had the revelation of God or no revelation of God, all of us are in sin because our nature is corrupt. But here's the interesting thing. Never does Paul explain why we do the things we do. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he just simply tells you, you do it. All of you do it. You are this. This is what you are. And he reveals to you a problem that you cannot resolve. But he will not tell you why. But in chapter 5, he finally gets around to telling you why. Your father sinned, and you're in your father, and therefore you're a sinner. And that's why. Now, verse 12, I pointed out the verse in verse 12 of chapter 5 at the word therefore, which always is pointing backward. What is happening is in verses 6 through 11... There's a series of fours. Remember what I've taught you over the years. Whenever you read the word for at the beginning of a verse, you should add some other words. For what? For this reason. For this reason. He's given you a reason. So what you can do is add at the end of a sentence, when you see your eyes see at the beginning of the next sentence or verse, it has the word for. You can actually even start to say to yourself, why? Why? Why, Paul? And what you will find is that your reading will kind of go up another level in understanding because you're actually interacting with the text. And you know what's coming. He's, for this reason, Matt, and then he explains it. And then he'll say something else, and you say, yeah, but why is that, Paul? And then he'll explain it. It's a simple way for you to begin to read maybe with a little bit better understanding than you have. In verses, uh, in verses uh, 6 through 11, a series of fours are explaining why, even though believers are filled with a lot of hardship, they rejoice. What is it about a believer, a Christian, that would cause them to rejoice even in the midst of hardships? Well, he describes it in verses 1 through 5. He says that we have a peace with God, that we're no longer his enemies. And now he's going to explain why that is true. Because of that, though, we have, in verse 2, hope, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is the secret for a Christian to persevere, to stand firm, to stay moving forward in their faith, is that they have a hope, and they understand what that hope is. It's not a wish, but it literally is an anchor for their soul, the writer of Hebrews says. So how does this hope not disappoint in verse 5? Well, he says the hope does not disappoint. Why? Because 
the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Now, if we just have that, we think, okay, I guess somehow we got God's love, and don't we feel really good about that? But that's not what he's going to describe. He's not going to tell you about a love that's a warm, fuzzy feeling. He's going to now tell you what that love looks like. How was it poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit? For this reason, in verse 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died in our place for the ungodly. In verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died in our place for us. In verse 10, for while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And he says, this is why we have hope, and this is why we endure in the midst of hardship, because we have this hope. What's the hope? God's love poured out in us. What's that love? Christ died for me. He took my sin away. I was his enemy. And he took my place. How does that fix anything? That's where he then explains Adam. He's like, because of this, you were an enemy of God because of Adam, your father. You're a sinner. You're his enemy. You have nothing to offer him. But a second Adam, the son of God, came and he took your place. That's why you rejoice. That's why you hope. That's why you exult. That's why in the midst of tribulations, you can still press forward and say, yet I will praise him. And so what I want to do today, going back to Genesis 3, is look at three results of sin, three consequences of this depravity that's found in each one of us from our very beginning. Because it's against that very dark backdrop of sin that you and I will then begin to see the glory and the hope of our salvation. And for some of you, that you might actually believe and be saved. That you might come from the shadows or from complete blackness. And finally, somebody will have explained to you, this is what a Christian is. And this is why. And this is how. Three results then of Depravity. Remember, depravity is not how bad you are in the way of what you do, but it is the fact that all aspects of you have been covered and tainted by sin. The very first thing is seen for us in verse 8, and that is that it avoids fellowship with God. The first thing that happens to people is that we avoid having any fellowship with God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God where among the trees of the garden. There was always going to be a fleeing from God. Now they heard God, but they're not rejoicing that they hear God. Now they should have come running, right? One of the great joys of any parent 
is when they've had a bad day and they come home and their children are there and they come running over to you. I remember when Nikki first learned to crawl. She was our first. And I remember walking through the door, just dog tired and bummed out. And it was just a bad day. And all of a sudden, I hear this swishing noise. And there she is crawling as fast as her little onesies could do to come up and climb onto my leg and let me carry her as she sits on my foot back into the household. And every problem went away, right? We all appreciate that. But this is our Father in heaven And he has now come to be and to have fellowship with his creatures. And instead of them running to him and saying, we are so happy you are here. Let us tell you about our day. No, they're just off and they're hiding. Why? Because there is now this enmity between them and God that Romans 5 talked about. First of all, I I would ask, how many of you, if you're not sure you're saved, how many of you are sure that you're his enemy? And let me say that whether you're assured of that or not doesn't matter. God says you are his enemy. You are opposed to him and his way. And as a result, you will come up with every possible way to avoid him. Even by sitting in church, you will do it. What's interesting is though they are now at enmity with God, it's not one of equals. It's not like they are as powerful as God and they're both kind of agreeing to disagree, kind of like America might be with Russia or China or something like that. It's really the enmity of a lesser toward the greater. And there's a bitterness and a resentment that comes with that because all they can do is really skulk and slink around and glare and resent but they know they can't really do anything, so they just kind of hide from him and flee from him so that they don't have to deal with him. There is a fear toward him. No longer is he their friend. He is now their judge. And yet what's interesting is that he has not said a thing, has he? Not one thing. All he did was show up to talk. Not one word, and they're already running. They're already hiding. They're already saying, not him. Satan's right. Satan was right. He told them they would now know the difference between good and evil, and they do. And it's now all bad. It fills them with fear. It fills them with dread. It condemns their conscience before their God. Ignorance is not bliss for them because they now know what is good and they know that they're not. The evil is known because it has now corrupted the fullness of their being. They are totally depraved. They are stained in every aspect of their person. It condemns their conscience before God. The evil is known because it walked into and moved into every area of their being. And they carry that stain. And so the Bible, when it talks about sin, it uses some of the most powerful and extensive language. In Genesis chapter 6, just before God destroys all of humanity, except for Noah and his family, by grace, they were saved. The rest of humanity, he looks upon them all and he says this in chapter 6, verse 5. He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So he looks at it and it's in its totality. It's just this mountain of evil. 
And then he goes to each individual person. He says in that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He just piles them on. He says that whatever it is before you ever think it, which you can't even do because the moment you think about what it is that is not yet a thought, you've turned it into a thought. He is saying the very spring, the very fountainhead of whatever you are that makes you think is only evil continually. And you're like, I disagree. I'm not that bad. You are thinking quantity and you're missing the point. You are missing the point. You want to debate whether or not that guy is worse than you? Yeah, he's a slime. Yeah, yeah, he is. I've met them all. I have met a guy named the two brothers called the Menendez brothers. I know them. The older people will appreciate that. Anyone remember the Night Stalker? I know him. If you lived in California and you were an older person, uh, older woman, you would have been terrorized by a man known as a valley rapist. I know him. I've met some really bad people in my life. And I can look at them and say, oh, aren't they bad? If we're going to talk that way. But if we're going to talk about whether or not we ourselves carry the stain of sin that makes us guilty before our God, then we are as bad. We have nothing to offer him. Only evil continually are the thoughts of your heart. Paul then taking all these Old Testament passages and he stitches them together in Romans 3. He says this about all of humanity. So, And his point is, as a result of what he says, he says all are under the power of sin. There is none righteous, he says, not even one. Not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have a t- uh, turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And then he sums it all up, and he says, there is no fear of God in their eyes. You can sit in a church, you can sing hymns, you can give money, you can read your Bible, and you can still be fully guilty of all of this if you are in Adam, because you have not resolved the core problem. And here's the rub you can't resolve the core problem. David tells us in Psalm 51 as he laments and confesses his sin against God in the great evil he did with Bathsheba. He says that when he was conceived in the womb, when he was but just a few cells, he was already conceived in sin and corruption. He had no chance in himself. And so there's an illustration I use. I haven't used it in a long time, but it's a good illustration, so I'll use it again. It's, I call it the gunk illustration, and I expect you guys to help me out with it. But I'm going to take my son-in-law, Tom, because I happen to look at him, 
and I'm going to make him the gunky guy. I'm going to dunk him in a barrel of gunk, and this gunk is vile, nasty, disgusting stuff. So take whatever you think in your mind, whatever makes you start to gag, that smell and that look, okay? Then times that by about 5 million, so that even the slightest thought of a whiff of it makes you just want to become sick. In fact, you can't help it, you become sick. It's oily and stinky and smelly and vile in every way, so that everyone looks at this man who is covered with it, and they only can say, get away from me, get away from me. Now, we'll take Tom filled with his gunk, and he picks up a towel, and he wipes off the gunk, and he wipes it off. Now, what has happened to the towel? This is where you answer back. It becomes what? Gunky. Gunky is a good word, so use it. It becomes gunky. This gunk is such that it replaces itself immediately. So he has wiped it off, and he's got a nice gunky towel, but he is as gunky as he was when he started. So he goes and, and takes a shower, and he stands in the shower under the hot water and splashing down, and is washing off the gunk, and he's seen it go down the drain and splash in the walls and in the tub and all of that. And yet he finds that as much as it's pouring off of him under the water, it's replacing instantaneously. So that he is as gunky at the end of the shower as he was at the beginning of the shower, but now the bathroom is covered in gunk, and every towel is covered in gunk. And he steps out, and he walks across the room, and he leaves footprints of gunk, and he sees his wife, whom he loves. And she's doing laundry, and he thinks, I will, I will help my wife. I love my wife. And so he picks up the clean towels to go and fold them. And what has he done to the clean towels? He's made them gunky. So he decides he will go and make a meal for a widow who is in need, and he thinks, well, she's not happy with me. I messed up the, that. So she, he goes to make a sandwich, and he's going to fix a meal. And every ingredient he touches, he covers in the gunk. But he makes a beautiful meal, and he puts it in a beautiful packaging. All of it he's done because he wants to help the widow out. And he drives to the widow's house, and he gives her the meal, and it's covered in gunk. Let's make it all the worse. And let's take this gunk, and it sucks into the very core of his being. It coats his dreams, it coats his words, it coats his thoughts, his emotions. Everything that is Tom is coated in this gunk. He comes back home and he looks at his wife whom he loves and he says, I love you, but it's coated. It's a good word, I love you, but it's coated. He can't get away from it. If that was just Tom, none of us would be around him. It would be so vile that we would literally become violently ill if we even saw him. The problem is, the Bible says, all of you are that gunky, and I am too. And so we only see the pretty package, and the sandwich, and the folded laundry, and the kind words, and we fool ourselves into thinking, we're not that bad. Beloved, you are far worse than any of you think. Without Christ, you have nothing. And if any of you are sitting here right now today and you're thinking that you're not that bad, you don't get it. You don't get it. 
You keep thinking, I'll do something else. Beloved, what are you going to do with the gunk that you can't deal with it? You don't even know it's there. You've already lied so much to yourself that you think you're that good. Beloved, there's nothing. That's the problem. That's why we see Adam and Eve hiding. You know what you need? You need someone to take the gunk away, because you sure can't. Now, you just replace the word gunk with sin, and you got a basic sense of what sin is. The good is also known by these two. Adam and Eve know what good is. They now know good and evil. The problem is they also are very much aware of this reality, that good does not reside in them anymore. They now know it, but they don't have it. In fact, they're actually condemned by that good because they are now confronted with God who is the essence of good. It's not that he just does good, but he is what good is, and they're not. And they are confronted with it in the fullness of the horror that yesterday they enjoyed him, and today they can't. They see good in its proper way, for sinners to see it in God, but it's not attractive anymore because it's assaulting their senses, it's condemning them, and now they have a point of wrestling within their hearts. And I will tell you, I've witnessed this over the many years of preaching that there are people that who are then becoming confronted with their sinfulness, and you watch them and they start to come up with fights and kicks and rationalization because they don't like the fact they're confronted with it. They're not that bad. And the Bible just keeps on ripping into them. Remember, beloved, that sin always has results, even though we forget that because we're sinners. No matter what it is we do, we think it will always be the payday will be later on, but the payday is always immediate. It just, it's there. And some of us maybe are guilty of searing the conscience until we don't hear it anymore, and we think, oh, that's good. It's quiet. No, because the guilt is still there. And that's the first thing you see. They flee from God. The second thing you see in this is a resisting of repentance. Here is God. He comes to his creatures. And remember, it wasn't that long ago he made these two. He literally made them. He talked with them. He gave them all that they have, everything they possess, from their first most basic atom to the entire universe. It's all theirs. He comes to them. He knows what's happened. It's not like he's dumb, and yet he still seeks them out. And there is a first encounter of grace in the Bible, the first time. Because he could have come in a holy terror and just destroyed them. He didn't have to talk to them. He didn't have to do anything. He could have just wiped them out and said, you're done. It was his. They were his. He is the creator. But again, the Bible says it over and over again. As you read the Bible, beloved, those of you in the one-year Bible reading plan, just notice how often he keeps coming back to his people and calling them to repent. Because God has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He doesn't ignore sin. He has come to confront it. But he's not going to do with it just by confronting. He will also deal with it by making the way of salvation. What did God want? Do you think he wanted them hiding? No. 
He wanted them to come to confess, to repent. He wanted them to come running to him. Oh, I've sinned. I've sinned. I remember when I was a little boy, my father worked in such a job that he traveled about three weeks out of every month. And he'd be gone. My mom had seven children. I was number six. I've been told, though I resist to believe these, that I was quite the pill, which is a Henry way of saying you were a jerk or bad or a pain in the rear or whatever you might choose to call it. I don't recall that. I thought I was a rather good child. I do remember, though, to this day, a moment where I must have been really bad because my mom was fed up, and she looked at me and she says, you wait until your dad comes home. And that wasn't going to be for a few days. But the way she said it, I knew I was dead. And I remember we were all downstairs, and we were watching whatever was on the one channel our TV had, and Dad came home. We heard the front door open, and I immediately jumped behind some chair and hid. I was a little guy. Mom went upstairs to see her husband, and there was a talk. And again, I must have done something really bad that he's been gone for three weeks, and all she can do is wait. She can't wait until she tells Dad about me. Because Dad comes down the stairs. I'll never forget the noise of his feet coming down those stairs. I'm hiding, and he's like, he, and my dad had a tone, and it was deadly. And he said, where's Matt? And I'm crouching down. All of a sudden, big, strong hand grabs the back of my shirt and lifts me up. And I went off to be disciplined. But I never forget when I got lifted up, I'm looking and all these fingers are pointing to where I am. <laughs> Nobody's taking that fall for me. I was terrified. Now, normally when dad comes, I'm running. Dad, 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 you're home. I didn't want to see my father because I knew what was coming. And that is what we do. We don't want, we don't want, we, we, we will talk about our sin, but we don't want to repent. We will do everything in our power to avoid that, that ownership of it. Mark my words, though, beloved. The moment that mankind sinned through Adam, they were in the business of hiding from God, not repenting, but fleeing and hiding. Which is why the book of Proverbs says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Or, or in Hebrews 4, which is a terrifying verse, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So David in Psalm 139 says, if I go into the depths of the ocean, you are there. If I go to the grave, you're there. I can't get away from you. And he's right. Who are you and where are you hiding? Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden that God made them behind the trees that he had given to them. And he said, of all and any of these trees, you may freely eat. And now they're peering from around the trunk, hoping, hoping he'll pass on by. The only way, beloved, listen to me, the only way you can ever not hide from God is by running to him and hiding in God. 
This is why the Bible will describe it in various ways, but in the psalmist, he will describe that God is his refuge, his hiding place. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, it says that our life is hidden with Christ. That's a, for me, maybe, I don't know what you guys think, but for me, that's such a wonderful statement. It's kind of like in John, where Jesus says that you are held by the grip of the Father who is in heaven, and no one can snatch you from his hand. But then he adds, he says, and you are held in my hand, and no one can snatch you from my hand. And you're this doubly safe individual in God himself. That's the only place that you can run and hide. Imagine if they had been treated with justice or if they had been treated fairly by God. He would have destroyed them, but they were treated with grace. Now, at this point, it's just common grace. It's the grace that every person in this room experiences every day of their life. It's just the ability to continue living and enjoy things. That special saving grace is going to come. But remember, man does not want to repent, only to avoid and to hide. We don't see them falling on their face and say, oh, forgive me. Instead, what you have is the third thing, and that is they rationalize their sin. He calls them, it's a word used in the Old Testament to being called to give an account. He's calling them on the carpet. What did you do? What's happened? And you see him. God does confront their sin. He's not going to pretend it didn't happen. And this is what he's doing right now with Adam and Eve. And so he says in verse 11, have you eaten from that tree I told you not to? And immediately the blame shifting starts, right? For the husband, because he goes to the husband, he's like, what have you done? And he's like, it's not my fault, it's a woman that you gave me. So it's not really blaming the woman. He's blaming the God who gave him the woman. And so then, instead of just smacking him, he looks at Eve and says, and you? She's like, it was the serpent. And the rationalizing continues. I'm looking at a whole bunch of rationalists, or rationalizers, I guess would be the proper thing. I bet all of you are really good, if you're like me, at diminishing your own guilt, right? And if you doubt me, then some of you and I, we could maybe have a sit down and we can be reminded of conversations we've had in the past. Just like whenever I would get too big for my britches, that's a Henry statement, my dad would remind me who I was. All of us rationalize. All of us are working it. But God just lays it bare. What is needed is honesty and humility. But what he gets, because by, by nature, that's what we do. We rationalize. And we say it's not that bad. Man loves darkness. Man loves sin. And he does not want to have a full and complete confession of it. It is only by grace that any man or woman is ever saved. That while we were yet enemies with God, Christ died in our place. While we were helpless, Christ died for us. All Adam had to say was, I'm in sin. Think, think of the way they looked. They looked like idiots. 
They're walking around with loin coverings made of leaves. God is saying to them, look at yourselves, explain yourselves, but no confession, no repentance, just word games. Man, therefore, deflects and guilt, and man will deflect his responsibility. He blames his wife, blames his children, blames his job. Beloved, here's a simple parenting advice. Just hear me, all of you who are parents. If you are in the habit of letting rationalization come from the lips of your children today, will you just stop that? Your child never gets to give you an excuse, ever. Do you mind how many times I've gone to people's homes and I've watched the disobedience? Oh, he's tired. I'm like, no, he's not. If he was tired, he'd be asleep. What he is, is being disobedient. He's not feeling well. I'm not feeling well. I'm sleepy. I'm this. I'm that. Beloved, kill it in your home. Don't allow for it. God doesn't. You don't have to be a jerk about it. Just don't tolerate it. There is no excuse. It's hard to bring the gospel into the hearts of a child whose whole life has been allowed to rationalize away the very thing that makes them need the gospel. There is no reason for it. You don't have to be, again, harsh. You are a fellow sinner looking at a sinner in your home, but you point them always to the cause, the root, and that is original sin. Because God will not let you and I hide. We will give an account. So all of you today, hear me well, you will give an account. In First Peter, it says that he is ready to judge the living and the dead, so even dying won't get you out of it. As a pastor and one who makes a living speaking, I'm always terrified by the words of Matthew 12, 36, where he says, I tell you, Jesus says this, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. And I'm like, I talk a lot. As a little boy, my dad called me a motor mouth. Today is the day of salvation for some of you. Do you see it? Do you see Jesus Christ as your only hope of life and forgiveness? Can you not see that you need to flee to the one who bore sin away on the cross? Can you not see that in Jesus alone is there hope? And let me say this. If today is not the day of your salvation, you walk away with a yawn, or an eye roll, or a rationalization, or a diminishing of your sin, or whatever else you're working already in your heart, he will be your judge. And everything that you've said, and all of the words you're working right now in your mind, won't matter one whit on that day. So let me end with this simple benediction that is one of my favorites in all of the scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.